Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 33 through this series in 1 Samuel. And our the title of our study today is Living by the Word. And today we're going to look at 1 Samuel 23, 1 through 14. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father in heaven, we just come before you right now. And, and we thank you so much that we can come boldly before you. You are our high priest who has made the way through the finished and sufficient work of Christ for us to come before you. And so, Lord, we do that humbly and thankfully through the finished and sufficient work of Christ. And Lord, we are so grateful for your grace and for your word, which tells us about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, I pray as we look at this passage God, that uh, we would humble ourselves before you and that we would grow, grow in our friendship with you as our high priest, as our Lord and our Savior. You, you call us no longer your enemies, but friends of God. So Lord, help us through this time of study to grow in intimacy with you and to see and to, to know more of your sovereignty. Illuminate your word now to us and help me as I teach it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it to 1 Samuel 23, 1-14. 1 Samuel 23, 1-14. And hear what the Word of God has to say to us today. And now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. And therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. And so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abathar the son of Amalek, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Well, the men of Keilah surrendered me into his hand. Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, 
but God did not give him into his hand. The chapters in 1 Samuel that recount the period when David lived as an outlaw are some of the most beloved and the most valuable portions of the biblical record of his life. These were the years when David responded to great spiritual challenges with a faith that guided him and gave him strength. Psalm 18, written after this, says this, that the Lord rescued him from the hand of all of his enemies and sums up David's frame of mind. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, Psalm 18, 1-2 says. Generations of Christians have been strengthened by this passage and similar expressions of faith that were forged in the crucible of David's struggle. David's spiritual struggle, though unique in some ways, was in many ways similar to our own. David had great promises from the Lord, but his circumstances before him did not make their fulfillment seem likely. God had promised to raise David to the throne of Israel. How much more likely would would this have seemed more likely in headier days, such as those after his triumph over Goliath the giant? Back then, trust in God's promise must have been simple, just as our faith comes easily after early triumphs in our Christian lives. But now, during the exile period of David's life, his faith would follow an up-and-down path, sometimes strong, sometimes vibrant, and sometimes desperately desperate and wavering. We may not have a promise of kingship over the people of God as David did, but we do have promises of blessing, promises of help and power from God. Just as David must have questioned God's promise to him, we also face circumstances that make God's promised salvation seem uncertain. 1 Samuel 23 sees David in a particularly difficult stage of his exile, though an important stage in his spiritual growth. He is challenged by the Lord to think not merely of his own survival, but also of his duty to his neighbors, even as he continues to suffer the grievous plight of his betrayal and his hatred. God sustains David through this trial with two great resources, the revelation of the word and the encouragement of a fellow believer. The first half of the chapter focuses on David's safety and relying on God's revelation, teaching us the value of living by God's word in all the ups and downs of life. In chapter 22, God had directed David through the prophet Gad to return to Judah. And at that time, there was no explanation for this order. But the reason becomes known in 1 Samuel 23. Kelilah, a a walled town in the eastern farmlands of Judah, was besieged by the Philistines who were robbing the threshing floors, 1 Samuel 23.1. The city's economy was being ruined and its very existence threatened. And news of the siege reached David's ears. Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, 1 Samuel 23.1 says. David's zeal for his country is seen in his willingness to endanger himself on behalf of this city. But first, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? 1 Samuel 23.2 says. Both David's zeal and his care in consulting the word of God indicate that his spiritual recovery begun in the previous chapter has now advanced. And for this reason, the following phase of David's life will be one of his most spiritually fruitful. You see, God promises to bless those who seek him for guidance. David taught this in Psalm 19. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, Psalm 19, 7-8 says. 
In Psalm 119, 105, he declared, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In this case, God's word guided David to rescue Keilah. 1 Samuel 23, 4 says, The Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. When David's men learned what their leader intended to do, they were understandably shaken. 1 Samuel 23, 3 says, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? You see, it was bad enough being fugitives from Saul, but they saw no need to take on the Philistine army as well. In response to their objection, David inquired of the Lord again, 1 Samuel 23, 4 says. And during these events, not only was David provided with a prophet to discover the word of God, but also around this time, Abathur, the son of the high priest, arrived in David's camp having escaped the slaughter of the priests at Nob. And in that slaughter, they were told that Doab the Edomite struck down 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, 1 Samuel 22.18 says. The ephod, a sort of sacred apron, was part of the priest's uniform, Exodus 28.6-8 says. And one of these ephods, the high priest, contained the Urim and the Thummim, provided by God for the divining of the will of God. These lots were designed by God to give the yes or no answer to pointy questions or else to select a person chosen by lot. And the point we should note here is that God had now provided all the apparatus of kingship to David. Saul, the reigning king, had alienated the prophets and slaughtered the priests. David, the true and the divinely anointed king, was now served by a faithful prophet and a true priest. See, isolated from God's servants and the means of God's grace, evil Saul had the company of evil spirits who manipulated his moods, his words, and his actions. Under demonic influence, Saul became a man driven to kill his God-appointed successor. In contrast, David, supplied by the available means of God's grace, was guided and helped in his kingly role by the prophet and the priest. David was thus equipped as a righteous servant and savior for the needy people of Israel. The true king of Israel was to rule by God's word in close company with the prophets and the priests. And we see why the Davidic kingship came to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who not only is king over the people of God, but is himself our true prophet and our perfect high priest. Two of the functions of God's word are highlighted in these verses. David reigns through God's word, and David is rescued through the word of God. First, let's consider how David reigned over his little army by appealing to the word of God. When, when people expressed their alarm at the idea of attempting to rescue Keliah, David did not resort to his own reasoning, which could easily fail, or to coercion. Instead, he agreed to inquire of the word of God once more. In this manner, David shows us the basic the basis of effective Christian leadership today. True spiritual leaders are not those who motivate God's people by their dynamic personality, by appeals to worldly profit, or by coercive manipulations of guilt or abuse. True Christian leadership is based on the plain statement of the Word of God. And now notice David handled the difficult matter of persuading his men and alleviating their understandable fears. Abathar had not yet arrived with the ephod, and so David presumably inquired of the Lord through the prophet. And the Lord answered him, 
Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand, 1 Samuel 23.4 says. And so God's word gave David a clear direction for action and a promise of divine help and success. This is what Christian leaders should provide today from the written word of God. Both God's instructions and God's promise for the blessings that bring, that obedience will bring. A.W. Pink says this, David did not storm at his men and denounce them as cowards. And nor did he argue and attempt to reason with them, disdaining his own wisdom, feeling his utter dependency upon God. And more specifically, for their benefit, to set before them a godly example, he turned once more to Jehovah. Christian leaders today do not follow David's kingly example by appealing to the latest management practices or marketing place, setting themselves forth as transcendent spiritual celebrities, but by bringing the word of God to the people of God. The kingly reign of Christ is served when, like David, Christians seek direction from God's revelation, which we have in the scriptures. Consider the leadership of a Christian father in the home. How is he to establish Christ's kingly reign? The answer is by implementing biblical standards and expectations for relationships within the family. The husband is to sacrificially love and to lead his wife, and the wife is to help and submit to her husband, Ephesians 5, 22-33 teaches. The children are to obey their parents, and the parents are to treat them with fairness and consideration, Ephesians 6, 1-2 says. The basis for family relations is thus given in Scripture. Consider, as well, a pastor and other leaders in the church. It's popular today for churches to be organized on business principles with boards of directors governing behind the scenes and with the congregants looking upon, looked upon as customers. But you see, Christ reigns in his church through biblical church governance with pastors, elders, and deacons leading committed church members in accordance with the pastoral epistles and other New Testament instructions. Christ reigns in his church through faithful biblical teaching that centers on the cross and holds forth the whole counsel of God to the whole people of God. Christ reigns in his church when leaders bring the members to God in acceptable worship that is regulated by the word of God with reverence and with awe. Like David, who sought and taught God's word, Christian leaders today, fathers and mothers in the home, pastors and elders in the church, must communicate the biblical basis for their decisions and their directives. At the heart of Christian leadership is a knowledge of the Bible and ability to convey it to followers, just as the preaching of God's word is at the heart of a life of a church congregation. See, David's obedience to the word of God was rewarded in a number of ways. The first was the unity of the effort shown by his followers, who were evidently persuaded of God's will in this matter. Second, God blessed David's obedience at the fulfillment of his promise to give the Philistines into his hand, 1 Samuel 23.4. As a result, David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow, 1 Samuel 23.5 says. Here was the unexpected blessing of material provision for David's band as the Philistine herds fell into their hands. And moreover, David was saved by the inhabitants of Keilah, 1 Samuel 23.5 says. And finally, it seems that in the aftermath of this success, Abathar arrived at the high priest Ephod, including the Urim and the Thummim, for even more precise revelation from God. 
By inquiring of God's word, David brought unity and confidence to his followers as it was attended with God's blessing. See, this did not mean that David was therefore free from trouble any more than our obedience will be carefree, for there was still Saul to consider. 1 Samuel 23, 7-8 says this, And now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people of the war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And just as David learned this news about Saul, Abathar arrived with the Urim and the Thummim. David directly appealed to this divinely appointed means of revelation. 1 Samuel 23.9 says, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. We can sense David's weariness and the strain from Saul's unending malice as he calls on the Lord with fervor, repeatedly noting God's covenant relationship with his people. 1 Samuel 23, 10-13 says this, And then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. And then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Like David, when we make a habit of carefully consulting the Lord, not only are we enabled to reign through the word of God, but we are rescued from all matter of danger. Consider the besetting sins of our time, such as wanton sexual indulgence and the celebration of adultery. Despite temptation and confusing moral values, Christians who diligently consult the word of God will be delivered from great sin. See, the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 6.18 to flee from sexual immorality and to let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, Hebrews 13.14 says. By following this counsel, Christians are spared from many woes. Young people today, especially given the nature of worldly youth culture, may be tempted to adopt essential matter of dress or conduct, despite the lifestyle to which an attitude often leads. God's word, though, rescues us from this danger. Paul reminds us of our high calling to purity and holiness in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And we can make similar observations about the other common sin areas. American society has suffered from a frenzy of materialism and greed, manifested in a man folly in the real estate and financial markets. Christians who have consulted the word of God will often be protected in the crashing of markets and the plummeting of real estate values since they have been preserved from greedy folly by the Bible's teaching. Paul wrote this in, in 1 Timothy 6, 9, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The wisdom of God's word protects Christians from the disaster of greed, knowing that there is great gain in godliness and contentment, 1 Timothy 6, 6 says. Both in guiding us aright and rescuing us from folly and sin, the word of God offers Christians the blessing of the well-known proverb, 
of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, as we apply David's example to our lives, many are going to object that Christians no longer possess the prophetic resources that enable David to gain God's answers to specific questions about his life. This objection here is based on an accurate observation. For David occupied a unique role in the history of God's redeeming work and thus received special resources. How then today do Christians lacking Urim and Thummim gain God's guidance for the all-important decisions of our lives? Well, this is a good, good question. First, when we're faced with a choice, we should seek to understand what the Bible prohibits or what the Bible commands. You see, Christians are saved so as no longer to live in sin, but to obey the word of God. And therefore, no action which is contrary to the plain word of God can ever be legitimate for the Christian. This is one reason why it's so important for Christians to know the Ten Commandments. Any course of action that involves lying, hating another person, or seizing possessions that belong to someone else is in violation of the law of God. While this seems obvious, but Christians can avoid many serious mistakes if they simply place the grid of the Ten Commandments over their decision-making. And the same is true when it comes to clear duties that the Bible gives. It is always God's will for us to obey His commandments and to never violate His law. Second, when we understand which course of actions are forbidden, Christians should then consider which options are wise and beneficial according to biblical principles. Is the action likely to be profitable? And is it in accord with biblical priorities? Well, if not, then even if it's not forbidden, it should be avoided. Often this will involve occupational choices or job locations. Is this a job that will provide for my family while enabling me to be faithful as a husband, a father, and a Christian? Do I know of a good church where I'm thinking of moving? Does this perspective, does this perspective, husband or wife, exhibit a strong faith in biblical character? Is this a reasonable purchase, given my resources and my desire to support the work of the church? Will this choice strengthen my relationship with Jesus Christ or weaken my faith? Sinclair Ferguson says, It is possible to make choices which eventually will tend to squeeze out our spiritual energies, to commit ourselves to things which, however legitimate in general terms, will eventually become the domineering and the driving force of our lives. Third, Christians should ask what effect a given choice or decision is likely to have on others. How will this action affect family members, co-workers, friends, and fellow church members? It is true the Bible teaches Christian liberty in matters of biblical permission. And our liberty must be guided by responsibility and love. Paul writes that we should never allow our choices to destroy the work of God or make another stumble, Romans 14.20. And while we tend to be motivated by concerns for our own personal comfort and security, God challenges us to sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of others. Fourth, Christians should compare their proposed action with a biblical example or a biblical illustration. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians um, 11, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. How did faithful men and women in Scripture handle these same situations? Hebrews 13.7 says that we should consider the example of faithful Christian leaders. 
Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Most importantly is the example of Jesus Christ properly understood from the scriptures. Much of all that Jesus did could have been done only by him and in many cases should only be done by him. Jesus alone is Lord and we are not to assume his prerogatives. But when it comes to his compassion for the weak and the broken, his zeal for God and his ways, and his courage before worldly opposition, Jesus is indeed our great model. Notice the emphasis that Peter gave in setting forth the example of Christ when speaking of the cross in 1 Peter 2.21. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. These principles of biblical decision-making assume two vital preconditions. And the first is that we know our Bibles. We'll never know God's will until we have followed Paul's command to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, Romans 12, 2 says. Sinclair Ferguson says this, The chief need we have is that of increased familiarity with and sensitivity to the wisdom of the word of God. And accompanying a mind increasingly shaped by scripture is a heart heart warmed by frequently meeting with the Lord in prayer. And notice a priority on scripture and prayer matches the two resources given to David, the prophetic word and the priestly intercession. The Puritan John Newton appealed to these same resources in writing to a Christian friend. He said, How then may the Lord's guidance be expected? In general, he guides and directs his people by affording them an answer to prayer, the light of his Holy Spirit, which enables them to understand and to love the scriptures. The word of God is to furnish us with just principles, right apprehensions to regulate our judgments and affections, and therefore influence and direct our conduct. Now, some might consider this kind of biblical analysis rules out what is often referred to as God's leading in our lives. And it's true that God may lay burdens or passions on our heart, and that in this way, the Holy Spirit seeks to guide us along with providential opportunities that God sets before us. And yet, the Holy Spirit's leading in God's providence never runs contrary to the Word of God. Nothing forbidden by God is ever prompted by the Holy Spirit, nor does God lead us in ways that are contrary to biblical principles and biblical motivations. Well, sometimes Christians desire information that God simply has not promised to provide. Should a young man join the Army or the Marine Corps? Now, there may be circumstances that lead in one way or the other, but far more important than choosing between the two is deciding to honor Christ in either service. Should a Christian man pursue marriage with Susie or Tammy? Should a Christian woman choose Bill or Bob? And assuming that both potential spouses are equally committed to Christ and both so godly character, a person may feel free to marry the one to whom he or she is more naturally attracted. And what really matters is that the men and the women obey God's commands for how husbands and wives shall love one another. The revelation that we really need from God is precisely what God has already given us in his word. His commands and his instructions for glorifying him and living in a godly, a loving, and in a wise manner. But not only does the Bible help us make wise and mature and godly decisions, but even more importantly, God's word informs us of the great and the vital truths of life. 
some of the Bible's great truths are unfolded in David's experience in this passage. First, the Bible teaches that we will find no hope of salvation in the ways of men. Consider the people of Keilah. When Saul's forces drew near, David inquired of the Lord, and then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you, 1 Samuel 23, 12 says. David had sacrificially given himself and his men in order to save the city. But as soon as a new danger came, the Keilahs were all too willing to save themselves by portraying David to Saul. This is the way of the whole world, as the Bible teaches in Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. And this being true, we cannot trust our salvation into the hands of any man. This is true even of ourselves. We so seldom live up to our own high ideals and frequently let ourselves down in others in our weakness and our sin. Even when we desire to save one another, we often lack the power, as Kedalously lacked the power to shield David from Saul. This is why David's saying, Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation, Psalm 146.3 says. Secondly, the Bible reveals that we are pursued by a mighty and a dreadful enemy who seeks to destroy our souls. David had done no evil to Saul, and yet Saul was bent on destroying him utterly. And so we're also threatened by our evil adversary, the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see, our enemy's hatred is not easily devoided since he wields the power of sin, and sin is backed up with the threat of God's own law in its curse of death for sin. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that the devil subjects all mankind through fear of death to lifelong, lifelong slavery, Hebrews 2.15 says. And Paul writes, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law, 1 Corinthians 15.56 says. So this is our great and our terrible problem, that the mad enemy who hates us has gained power over us through sin and who draws near to destroy us with the sword of God's holy justice. We see this terror reflected throughout, God, throughout David's psalms as he flees from the wicked King Saul. Psalm 54, 3 says, Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. And yet behind Saul stood the greater enemy of Satan and sin, seeking David's eternal condemnation as well as our own. Through the Bible reveals that we may find a refuge and safe stronghold in the grace and power of God, whose word speaks of a Savior who delivers us from Satan and from sin. Through the people of Keilah betrayed David, and through the evil king, Saul still sought to take his life. The Lord saved him and preserved him. 1 Samuel 23, 14 says, and, and David remained in the stronghold in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And David therefore sang with joy, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 54, 4. God achieved our salvation by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear the punishment of our sins, to free us from the wrath of God's holy justice, in this way to overthrow the kingdom of our great enemy, the devil. David's praise to God is therefore well suited to our mouths as we entrust the Lord for our own salvation. Psalm 146.5 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Well, today we've, we've considered quite a great deal, but, but just as we wrap this up, 
here's here's some some final final thoughts. You know, we we've talked about making decisions and 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 those types of things and and being biblical in our thinking. But what we need to understand is that the heart of what this passage is trying to get us to understand so far is this, is that David was growing in intimacy with God. And that didn't happen just by his feelings. That didn't just happen because he had a feeling of of nearness to God. Rather, what our text tells us repeatedly is that David sought the Lord. He sought the Lord because he believed the Lord would answer him. And the Lord answered him according to the word of God. You see, this is important for us to understand. We might think that we need a sign or we need something to happen in order for some guidance to happen in our lives. But the first thing that we need to do is we need to grow, as I said, in the word of God. We need to be reading our Bibles. Oftentimes what happens, uh, and I see this day in and day out, among Christians who contact me. They want to know what God's will is in this part of their lives. They, they want to know what to do. The thing is, is, the thing that we have to do is we have to be reading and studying and thinking about Scripture and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord that is in the Scriptures. Uh, it's only then that, that we'll, we'll have a prism, a lens, the, the glasses that's been used to, to be able to see the world in the right way through a biblical worldview. That's that's what's key. You see, David had David kept falling and stumbling and and hitting his head against uh, the against sin, and we do the same today because we forget that our faith isn't grounded in our feelings. It's not grounded in something that we do. It's our faith in Christ. It's grounded in something that has been done. It's done. It's done. Christ has done it. And how do we know that? The Bible tells us. So our faith is not just something out there. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's a fact of history. It's a fact of redemptive history. It's a fact grounded in the sure and steady word of God. And and the second thing is, is as David grew and kept growing in intimacy with God, he sought more of God. He sought God repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly. He wanted, he desired to grow in the word so that his decisions would be honoring to the Lord. You know, now I, I know that what I said earlier will is, is hard to hear, but the second thing is even harder because oftentimes we think, well, where do I go? Where do I go? Where do I move next? Where do I go? Where do I want to move to? You know, uh, because we have discontent. But, but what God wants is for his people to be content. The thing is, is if you keep moving, keep wanting that other position or, or that other place or whatever, that reveals a heart that is discontent where God has placed you. And you know what? Let's be real about this here. Let's be honest. We're guilty of that. When I lived in Idaho, I wanted to move elsewhere. I would go visit California. I would go visit Hawaii. I would go over to the East Coast or back home to uh, Washington. I wanted to move there every time. What, I, what, what hit me is on one trip back to Seattle, I realized, you know what? Seattle is great. I, I will always love Seattle, but I loved where I was. I loved the people that God had placed around me in Idaho. And that changed my perspective. I became much more content with where God had placed me. So before you think about moving, ask yourself, or, or where, wherever about the jo- or your job or situation, ask yourself, are you content 
Because it's God's will that we be content in him. Uh, yeah, we be content in, in the Lord. He places us where he has need of us. And so who are we to say, God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this place. Now, now that may be true, but, but there's reasons underneath that. And I just wonder if, if some of you aren't like I was, where you want to move to a different place because you're not really content where you are. You have, you're, you're just so restless. And what, what we need to understand is that God places us where he has need of us the most. For example, right now I live, um, I live about an hour north of, of L.A., you know, is California ultimately where I want to spend the rest of my life? Most likely not. But I've also realized in the last year or so, God has brought me here to California. And he has a plan for that. He has a purpose for my wife and I living here for however long that is. And so if I'm not content, like I said earlier, and I just want to move away and make plans, my wife and I make plans, that doesn't reveal a heart that trusts the sovereignty of God. Instead, it, 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 it shows a heart that doesn't trust the sovereignty of God. Because God clearly moved us from Idaho to California for a reason. That was for not only for my wife's job, but, but to grow us in the grace of knowledge of God. To grow our marriage. To be a support to, uh, to a family member and so on and so forth. You see, God has reason, there's reasons why God places us where he has us. And those purposes are good and they're holy and they're just and they're perfect. And there's also good reasons to move. I, I didn't talk about that. But, but you know, seek out, the, seek out the word of God. This is what I'm saying. We have to get in the word and, and learn what scripture teaches about the will of God. You know, God's will is that we become like Christ. So our, our decisions are to be formed and shaped by scripture. And we also need to pray. We also need to pray. And we need to ask other people to pray. And we need them to speak into our lives. They need, we need them to ask us hard questions. We need to ask hard questions of our spouse as well. And have them ask hard questions. What do you think about this? What are you struggling with in this decision? And, and getting to the heart motivations of, of why you want to move and why you want to do this and that, that takes longer. But, but that's, that's good. It's good to slow down our decision-making because I think what ends up happening is this. I think that for many Christians, what we say is, I feel like I just want to do this. But our faith is not grounded in our feelings, as, I, as I've already said. Our facts, our faith is grounded in the sure and steady character of God who has revealed himself in the Word. And so God has told us, this is where the way he wants us to go. He wants us to grow. And he wants us to grow in trust of him. And to be content where he's placed us. That's hard. It's hard to, you know, you're, you might be waiting for that dream job or that, that thing that you want more than anything. And yet, if you read the Psalms over and over again, the refrain is, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. That's, that's a tough word, wait on the Lord. But why do we wait on the Lord? Realize this, we wait on the Lord because the Lord is sovereign. We wait on the Lord because he's good. We wait on the Lord because he loves us. And John 15 tells us he, we're no longer rebels. We're friends of God. And this gets at the heart of what this passage in 1 Samuel 23 wants to help us understand. That is, 
We want to be blessed by God. We want to be used by God. And that's a good thing as, as a Christian. But do you, want to, do you want to dive deep into intimacy with God in his word, in prayer? If you want to be used by God, guess what? That's where it begins. We want to talk all day long about being an effective servant for God. But guess what? At the heart of it, David shows us what an effective servant of God is. It's being a man or a woman of the word and a man or a woman of prayer. A man or a woman of God must be a man or a woman of the word and prayer. Let me say that again. A man or a woman of God must be a man or a woman of the word and prayer. If not, then then guess what? If we replace that with some sort of do this and that. No, what we need is we need to get in the word. And we need to get in prayer. We need to, to know to the will of God. Guess what? You need to, to read the Bible and study it. To, to get to know God. And guess what? Hebrews 4.16 invites us. It summons us before the throne of God. Because Christ is our high priest. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. And he desires us to come with all of our struggles, with all of our foibles, to this, to this throne of grace. That, that is an amazing fact. In the, in the Old Testament, the people couldn't come before God. They did not have such free access. And yet, we have such free access through the finished and sufficient work of Christ. He is our high priest. That's a, that's a biblical fact. And God desires us to be shaped and molded and formed by the word. So as we make decisions, they'll, they'll honor him. You see, we have been made right with God. That, that's justification. That is, we've been declared not guilty. We've been adopted. We were no longer enemies. We're, we're friends of God. We're adopted by God. That's adoption. God has removed our sin as far as the east is, east from the west. And we are no longer under his wrath. That's good news. That's good news. And now he's a, he indwells us by his spirit. He empowers us for mission. He illuminates the word of God so that we can understand it. See, we have every reason in the world to to grow in the word and and to spend time in prayer. But I know that we have so many distractions all around us. Distractions from people who need us. Distractions from even things that we do that are are good. But the, the most ultimate thing, if you desire to be used mightily by God, it's simple. If you desire to be ultimately and powerfully used by God, be a man or a woman of the word. Be a man or a woman of prayer. You know, I, I can't even tell you how many times, uh, there have been, there've been many, many times people have come up to me. I've walked down the street, and, and this is when I lived in Seattle, and they, and they would say, I, I've seen you walking around here quite a bit, and I notice that you're just different than, than people. You see, people should notice that there's something different about you. They should notice, even in coffee shops, I've had this same thing. I noticed, I noticed that you were talking about this, and I, and I was interested in what you were saying. Uh, can you tell me more? Yes. <laughs> I would love to tell you more. I'd love to tell you about the gospel. See, people should be seeing our lives, and they, and they should be seeing the word being formed. And, and that's attractive because people are are lost. The Bible tells us they are lost. They are perishing. And what they need is hope. And if, if we want to be used by God, then we need to be people of the word. And we need to be people of prayer. And that's what's so convicting about this passage. 
is that David consults the Lord because he's a person of the word and he is a person of prayer. And that is that is ours, that is our privilege and our joy as God's people to be people of the word, to be people of prayer because Jesus as the word came in human flesh. That's the incarnation. He, Jesus recognized his need to, to pray. He didn't need to pray, but he prayed anyway. He needed regular times as, a, as fully man and fully God to go away and to pray to his father, the gospels tell us. How much more today do we need the same? We need time, regular daily times in the word and in prayer so that we might make godly decisions that honor God and glorify him and lift up the name of Jesus among the nations so that we can be effective witnesses and servants of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much here that, that in this rich passage that we've considered today. But I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged, that you would, by your Spirit, challenge us, that we need to grow in intimacy with you, that we don't need to just say the right words. We need to know those words. We need to know biblical words and biblical categories. But even more so, Lord, we need to dive into your word to get to know who you are and what you're like and who Jesus is and what he's like and what he commands of us. So, Lord, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful example of David who sought to be a person of the word and prayer and, and consulted you through the means that you've given. And we thank you, most importantly, today, Lord, that that we don't have a need of of other tools or anything we can come boldly and directly to you because your word invites us to do so. And so that's what we're doing. We thank you for your throne of grace and we thank you for the grace of God. And I pray, Lord, today that, that, that we would be challenged to get in the word and to read it daily and to study it and to spend time growing in intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.